fear. Our society and our world is filled with it. That is not a surprise to anyone here. Whether it's COVID, fear of COVID, or fear of the vaccine, or fear of not, someone not having the vaccine or not getting the vaccine, if it's fear of big government, if it's fear of not enough government, if it's fear of they're gonna take my guns, or if it's fear I'm gonna get shot with a gun, if it's fear of Islam, or fear of fundamentalist Christianity, of red China, or of red America, of immigration, Afghanistan, the borders, Marxism, capitalism, death, disease, kind of maybe closer to home, more prosaically, not having enough uh, on our plates, not having enough in our bank accounts. Will I keep my job? A lot of people are asking that right now. More internally, am I accepted? Am I enough? Am I loved? Am I liked? And on and on it goes. But there are less, so, so we have a society that's just rife with fear. It's pervaded right now by a palpable sense of fear. But there are, and it has been right for the past 18 months plus. But it's really come, it's come to the surface through some of these things, these pandemics and so on. But there are lesser fears too. We fear others living in a state of almost perpetual anxiety about what other people think about us. We have, and I'm included in that. I wake up uh, most mornings not only with, not so much with the fear of man on me, though I walk throughout the day having to push that off, but with a fear of all the things that are going to meet me that day, all the things that, have, that I've left undone. I almost jump out of bed to go run to my fortress to push off those fears. But we fear man. We crave and we'll do almost anything sometimes, it seems, to obtain man's good opinion, even of people we don't necessarily even like, right, which is so strange. But this fear drives us, right? These lesser fears even. Author Michael Reeves, who's written a really good book on fear called Rejoice and Tremble, he writes, we don't talk much about fear of man today. You don't really hear that phrase. It's everywhere, but you don't hear that phrase a lot, right? He says we call it people-pleasing, peer pressure, or codependency. Some classic signs of it are the overcommitment that comes from an inability to say no. Let that one just sit. That really hits me. Self-esteem issues an excessive sensitivity to the comments, views, and behavior of others. And need I even mention, he says, our fear, our, our fear of evangelism. And he got me there too. Reeves goes on, Western culture has come to view low self-esteem as the root of our every emotional problem, holding us back in life. The normal prescription for building your self-worth on the opinion of others is to love yourself more. Love yourself so much that it will hardly matter what other people think. In other words, he says, treat the disease of narcissism with more narcissism. That makes it worse. That makes us more self-referential and more self-conscious. So whether it's fear of man, fear of bills, fear of being alone, fear of a virus, fear of the wrong party taking power or seating power or our country going down the tubes, many of us choose to cope with these things rather than face them because it's just too much. We cope to, we, 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 choose to cope with these fears in various ways, right? So we numb with, whether it's Netflix, and I'm not throwing stones at Netflix or any of the other things I mentioned necessarily. Alcohol, screens, we numb with screens, we avoid reality with them. Now I'm gonna take a different turn, maybe we do it in ways that I would speak against with pornography, which is rife and pervasive, even one night stands, and the list goes on. But then there's the mother of things to fear, right? Speaking of things to fear, the mother of things to fear, and that's death. 
So here's where I get a bit autobiographical. <clears throat> Apparently, flying over the Pacific Ocean a few weeks ago, I should have died. Uh, most of you know this story, but we were, it's embarrassing to tell, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a give glory story. Um, we were at a trampoline park. My wife has family in Maui, and her grandfather got sick, and thank God he's better. Uh, miracle story there. But we went over to see him, and so Robin's, most of my wife's, most of her family lives there. A lot of her family lives in Maui. And so we were with her brother, sister-in-law, kids at a trampoline park, and I was doing stuff that a 42-year-old apparently shouldn't be doing, thinking I was 12 or 22, doing backflips, no problem there, but doing other things, and nothing acute ha happened, but I think it was just my oldness. After about an hour, I, I sat down, and within five minutes, I could not breathe. I mean, I was breathing, but barely, like, <gasps> just getting really shallow breaths. And of course, my wife says what a sensible person would say, why don't we go to the hospital or go see a doctor? To which I said, no, let's rub some dirt in it. We're on holiday. That's nonsense, poopy pants, you know? We're not doing that. I didn't say that, but basically. <clears throat> and so after about an hour, I was able to get up, use the restroom, hobble to the car. I didn't drive home, had the sense not to do that, and just sort of worked toughed through it for the next uh, week and a half. Flew back home, and after about a week, again, my wife pushes me. I remember I was at work on a Friday, working away on something, and trying to get the work done for the week, and she said, hey, again, you really need, I, something's still not right, Robin, that I'm coughing. I'm much better than I was. I mean, I was kind of suffocating for a couple days. Uh, wasn't suffocating anymore, like getting better daily, but I still could tell there was something wrong on the inside. I had a cough, et cetera. I hadn't worked out because I could tell wind sprints and swimming, not a good idea, probably not going to work. So I should get a photograph of the inside. Robin pushes me to go do that. Long story, somewhat short, uh, they realized that I had a hole in my lung. I'd punctured my lung in the trampoline park. And again, long story short, I got the opinion of three surgeons, two car cardiothoracics and one vascular, once they had eyes on my inside through x-rays and CAT scans saying, yeah, uh, the fact that you didn't die uh, coming back from Maui with, with your condition, which was much, clearly much worse than it is now, uh, means that God has other plans for you. Someone's looking out for you. And we were reading, we were reading, um, excuse me, we were singing the second stanza in Reckless Love before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. You've been so, so kind to me. And I just, like I'm doing now, I got, I got a bit broken up. Um, God sustained me. But the fact is, and the point that I want to make right now, is that all of us, all the time, are just teetering on the verge. I don't mean to be morbid here, but I, I mean to be truthful. We're teetering on the verge. I mean, we're, we're standing on a trap door that is death. We, we could go at any moment. I had no idea. You could have a bubble in your brain. Who knows? Car could come. We, we don't know. We have a dear member who's not here today that that happened to her sister two weeks ago. She just, she saw her in the doorway after a wonderful trip to Florida one minute, and then literally the next morning, we all get the word, she's at the hospital, and then within 12 hours, she's gone. Didn't know. Um, we are ticking time bombs. And the fact is, we are all heading that direction. My wife and I just celebrated our 15-year anniversary on Thursday. And um, yeah, and we actually used the gift card that the church gave us, get this pre-COVID. I pulled it out and I was like, whoa, I, this was definitely a pre-COVID gift card. So we've been saving it. 
and we saved it for a special occasion, so thank you again for that. And we were at the restaurant, and uh, well, anyway, we celebrated, and then last night or the night before, she, we, so the gift I gave her was uh, to reset her wedding ring, her engagement ring, and she was talking about it, and she said, you know, uh, I could do this and that with, with the wedding ring, and then I could just keep this simple ring that I have, you could bury me in that. And I was like washing dishes, and I was like, er, wow, that's, that's an intense thing to say. I'd never thought about, it, it never, I know she's going to die. I know I'm going to die unless Christ returns. I'd never thought about burying my wife. It's more likely she'll bury me, but one of the two, right? One of the two is going to happen. That's the case with every single person here. We're going to be buried. That's the direction we're heading. We're walking toward the grave. So in that sense, with death sort of as a trap door under us, we have much to fear. Speaking of death, Nietzsche, the German philosopher, said, how strange that this sole thing that is certain and common to all exercises almost no influence on men, right? We, we push it aside. We try not to think about it. We, we do anything but think about the one thing that's certain to all of us, right? It exercises almost no influence on men. In fact, we do, we, we do a lot of other things to try to avoid thinking about that thing, but it's coming. He says, and that they are the furthest from regarding themselves as the brotherhood of death. How Nietzschean. The brotherhood of death, right? We're all going that direction. So fear. Why is our society soaked in it? Why are we driven by it? And how do we rid ourselves of it? Is that even possible? Think back to JFK's dictum. Um, is it true, right? That, where he said the only thing that we have to fear is fear itself. Is that true? Manifestly, no. Manifestly, no, it's not true. But Jesus' words are true. Let me, let me quote from, from Jesus himself in Luke 12. Characteristically, he puts all this that I've been talking about in perspective. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he kind of shifts and he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. So what is Jesus showing us here? What is he telling? He's giving us a life-saving principle here that roots us into a healthy understanding of fear. Should we dismiss it? How can we get rid of it? Should we focus on it? What's the, healthy, what's the healthy way? Here, Jesus shows us the only antidote to fear, and if you're taking notes, write this down, the only antidote to fear is fear with a capital F. The only antidote to fear is capital F, fear. Fearing God. Jesus does not say don't fear. He says, I'm gonna tell you who to fear. The question isn't how can I get rid of fear, but what or whom should I fear? Because we will fear, as we've been talking about. We will fear because we were made to fear. We were made to fear God. But when, we, when our parents, okay, in whom we are born until we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, when our parents rebelled against God and sinned and went their own way, that fear of God that was central to their composition moved to fearing anything but God. And so we fear all sorts of other things, and it is one of the things that manifests the sickness 
that is pervasive in us, right? Um, the only antidote, so excuse me, let me say this. We were made to fear. It's how we work. It's the gas that we run on. But anything but fear of God is bad gas. It will ruin your tank, your vehicle, your eternity. Fearing anything but God. We were made to fear him, but we don't. And we're driven by all sorts of other fears, but it, it ruins us. It seizes us. It makes us crazy. The only antidote to fear is capital F, fear. Fear of God, here it is, if you're taking notes again, let me put it a different way. Fear of God pushes out all lesser fears. I'll come back to that. Fear of God pushes out all lesser fears and it puts everything in the right order. And we're gonna, we're gonna drill into that. We're returning um, to our fall series in Proverbs. So we've been in Proverbs, now we're back. We, d- we did three weeks on a Life Together series that all the sojourns do every fall, every autumn. I prefer the word autumn to fall. Um, and so since this is the first time that I've been able to preach in this series, I'm going back to the beginning of Proverbs. We've been in Proverbs for weeks. We're going to continue to be. But I'm taking this core doctrine that all the Proverbs are built on from Proverbs 1.7 that talks about fearing God as the foundation stone of wisdom and knowledge. And I'm setting it before us and saying this is what the wisest man on planet Earth told us is the key to life is fear of God. It will, it will push out our lesser fears. It will order our lives, okay? So let me read the verse now. Proverbs 1.7 in the ESV, it reads, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, you can't even start down the path to knowledge without fear of God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, Michael Reeves says, The fear of the Lord gives believers a knowledge no natural-born genius ever has. You know, back to Adam and Eve, more knowledge did not make them happier, did it? It made them miserabler, right? Uh, It didn't make them more fulfilled because it was acquired uh, at the loss of relationship with their maker, although he, he stepped toward them in mercy and grace and provided a way, which is a picture of the gospel. It led to misery and more knowledge in their case led to misery and death. And do we have, we have a society that has more knowledge with Google and with the internet and with all sorts of other stuff than ever before in history. And yet we're rife with fear. Fear is the beginning of true knowledge. We know so much, but the author of Proverbs is saying there's a sense in which we don't know, we haven't learned the first thing. We haven't even learned ABC if we don't fear God. And so we're gonna talk for the rest of this time about What does that mean? How do we fear God, okay? What does that look like and what's the key to it? And then how do we put it into practice? Fear of God, not IQ. We would all say IQ, most of us, a lot of us, our world. But fear of God, not IQ, is the foundation stone for knowledge. It is wisdom itself. Tim Keller, he says this. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the way the alphabet's the beginning of reading. There's no wisdom at all without it. But what is it, again? And maybe more importantly, how do we obtain it. Let me, let me crystallize what I've said a bit and where we're headed in this way. Rather than looking out at the world, as I started with, all sorts of fears grip us when we look out at the world. Uh, we keep the news on, you know, the, con- the 24-hour news cycle on constantly, and we're just feeding on that, okay? Uh, rather than looking out at the world or looking inside ourselves for the antidote to fear, the solution to very real fears all around us, and even to death itself, right? is to look not out or in, but up to God. And that takes us to this wonderful chapter in a wonderful 
book, um, the prophet uh, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. And it starts off by, with Isaiah having a vision of the living God. And, and most of us will know what he sees, right? He, he sees God in his, on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe fills the temple, and he's on his throne, and there's smoke, and everything is shaking, and Isaiah sees God, this unapproachable, high and holy and perfect, all-powerful God, ringed with these bodyguards, these burning angels, and they're flying, and even they can't look at God. They have six wings, and they cover these terrible creatures. They cover their eyes with two, and they cover their feet, which are thought to be sort of dirty because our feet touch the ground, with two, right? These perfect creatures that don't have any sin, they're covering themselves before God, and with two, they're flying, and they're saying this refrain that is famous in the scriptures, and you know it, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, okay? The whole earth is filled with his glory. And what is Isaiah's reaction when he sees this high God, this holy God? Does he go up and shake his hand and say, awesome, I've been waiting to see you? No, he doesn't do that. He basically hits the deck, right? He pronounces a curse on himself. He says, woe is me, for I'm unclean and I live among an unclean people. When we see God as he is, we realize we have a major, major problem. So Isaiah sees this holy God and he basically hits the deck, but he's not alone. He's not alone. In the Old Testament and on into the New, those who see God they fall. Abraham in Genesis 17, then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Joshua in Joshua 5.14, and he said, okay, he sees the angel of the Lord himself, and he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And what does Joshua do? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? David in 1 Chronicles 21.16 and David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. Israel, as a people in 1 Kings 18, after the showdown, during the showdown, between Elijah and the false prophets. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 127, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. Into the New Testament, Paul in Acts 9, 4, what happens to him? Saul in this case. Now as he went on his way, thinking he was doing all this service for God, minding his own business, he approached Damascus, thinking he was doing God's business rather. He approached Damascus and suddenly what? A light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. John, finally, in Revelation 1.16, in his right hand he held seven stars. He sees the risen Christ, right? 
He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. And this doesn't stop with humans, right? We've seen Old Testament and New, every reaction of a human when they see God is they fall. And Moses has to be covered. He has to be covered by God, and he can only see God's backside lest he die. But even the mountains and earth quake in the presence of the living God. In Nahum 1.5, all throughout the Psalms and other places. But it's like a quaking of a dog. My in-laws have five dogs, and boy, do they quake when you come in that door. They are howling with joy. For me, I'm not sure. They might be barking at me, get away. <laughs> But a dog and his master, if he's well treated, will just quake with joy and shake and the tail goes nuts and they jump up. Our kids still haven't figured this out. They jump up because they, you know, they, they don't walk on their hind legs and so they, they can't reach out and shake your hand or hug you. And that's their, that's their way of saying, hug me, play with me, I love you. That's what creation does when God comes close. It shakes and it quakes with joy. So seeing God's power will cause us to fear. But I want to transition here. There's something more. Surprisingly, surprisingly, fear of God increases the more that God's grace and forgiveness are experienced. Psalm 130 verse 4 says this, but with you there is forgiveness, what? That you may be feared. Tim Keller again writes, but this is the key to the Proverbs, and here we are. All the advice for holy living assumes a holy God who nonetheless redeems by grace. What does grace mean? It's a churchy word. Grace means God does it, not you, and he credits it to your account, okay? A God who accepts only the most moral people will inspire slavish fear of punishment, and I might add pride. If you think you're keeping all the rules, you're going to be really proud and obnoxious and very far from God. Nobody keeps all the rules, by the way, not even close. A God who simply accepts, on the other hand, everyone might evoke warm or tepid affection. But only a belief that we are lost and deserving of woe, of curse, of punishment, but freely saved sinners creates a joyful yet awe-filled assurance of his saving love. And that, Keller says, is wisdom's beginning. That's what, that's what the author of Proverbs is talking about when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's a joyful yet awe-filled assurance of his saving love. Going back to Isaiah 6 in that awful scene where Isaiah sees him high and lifted up and he hits the deck basically and he says, I'm cursed and I live among a cursed people. That's not the whole story, thank God, is it? That's Isaiah's commissioning. His life changes at that point. And he's basically at the end of that encounter like, I'll go, I'll do anything, just send me. Here I am, I'm available. What happens? What happens after that awful scene where he sees God high and lifted up? There's a scene where this burning creature, this terrifying creature goes to the altar where sacrifice is made and he takes this, this coal, this hot coal, and he touches it to Isaiah's lips and atonement or kafar in the Hebrew, covering is made for him. There's a covering that's made for him. And the gospel writers tell us that that high and holy king who is one was Jesus. It was the pre-incarnate Christ, God's son, the king of kings. 
He has all power. But what does he do? He atones for Isaiah's sins and for the sins of the people uh, from the altar. What Isaiah, Isaiah sees that moves him outward in the service of God is beauty. Beauty through God coming down low to him. Um, and that is what we see when the Christ, when God comes to us in the form of his own son, Jesus Christ. What we see, even though it was written beforehand, we're still so surprised by it because we can't imagine a being that has all power and that is totally holy doing this. He who is the most high and lifted up says, just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up on a cross. The worst form of torture and shame imaginable. Jesus Christ came to earth to be lifted up, not above us, to demand our obeisance, to show us how indeed powerful he is, but he went to the lowest place by being ironically raised up on a cross, an instrument of torture, like an insect pinned there for us. And in that moment, rolled into one, we see the amazing power for salvation of sinners, of God. He has made a way for the curtain to be torn into his very presence because he put on his own son all the punishment that we deserve as sinners. And yet at the same time, we see this amazing power and this amazing beauty through the humility and the selflessness and the total giving, which we're gonna celebrate tactily in a minute, of our Lord and Savior. Beauty and power rolled into one moment. The 19th century great Russian novelist, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote, beauty will save the world. Indeed it will. It has and it is doing even now through Christ and his cross and his resurrection. So the antidote to the epidemic of fear is a greater fear, the greatest fear, fear of God, which is actually and really grounded in uh, really love, grounded in awe and gratitude because of what God has done for us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and how Christ was lifted up. That is the image that God most wants for us to have of him, power and beauty rolled into the person of Jesus Christ. This is his heart for us. 19th century, I'm for some reason loving the 19th century uh, today, but 19th century Scottish theologian and pastor Thomas Chalmers, his sermon, I think it's the best titled sermon of all time, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, that's it. All the things that we go after, that we wrap our hearts around, that we fear, what we run after is what we fear, ironically, it's just the way it works. It's what we bow down to, it's what we crave, it's what we need, right? All those things, none of those things will be able to be pushed out and put in the right place until we have a greater and a new affection. And that only happens when we see the beauty of God in the person of Jesus Christ giving his life for us. His power amazes us, but it's his beauty that will melt our hearts and change us. And so I just wanna enjoin you to gaze on the beauty of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the antidote to fear. Um, the greater fear pushes out all lesser fears and loves and puts them in their proper place. Uh, Greg Beale, uh, maybe the best biblical theologian around, at least in the English language, he wrote a book, We Become What We Worship, which is an exposition of, I believe it's Isaiah 6. Um, we become what we worship. In other words, we become, what, do we, what, what is worship? That's a churchy word. We become what we gaze at. Whatever you gaze at is what you worship. That is, that is what you fear. 
we become like those things. The Israelites, what does God call them in the rebellion over and over again? He says, you are a blank, blank people. Shout it out. Act like you're at house church. That's right, stiff-necked. I saw John going, John, John's like the, he, he's the, uh, the, the answer buster. He, he, he always has the answer, but he rarely says it. Um, that's right, stiff-necked people. Have you ever thought about why? What were they worshiping? A cow. You ever, you ever been around a cow? You ever tried to get a cow to go somewhere? Pretty stiff-necked. Okay, they, weren't, they were worshiping a golden calf. They were doing what they had been doing for 400 years as a people. They hadn't yet learned to worship and fear and love God because they didn't know who he was. They'd forgotten, all right? And so they were becoming like what they were gazing at. And they thought that God and God's man Moses had left them, and so they just wanted something. And you might say, look, I don't worship a cow, but yes, you do, and yes, I do. Because that cow to them was something that would go with them that would make them feel safe and secure. And that's what we do right? And we become like what we worship. It would provide for them and their needs. It would make them feel safe and happy. I, have a, I had an Old Testament prof who was a mentor, and he had a brother. And of course, my Old Testament prof didn't have a lot of money because seminary profs just don't have a lot of money. I loved seeing all the cars that they drove. They're always clunkers. Um, and he drove a clunker. But his brother did not. His brother was an exec. I think he was the CFO uh, of, or the vice president of Marriott. You may have heard of it. And so every, uh, every year, his brother would, they would see each other once a year for Christmas or something. His brother would walk in the door. First thing he would do is he would show, he would say, let me see your checkbook. And he would show his brother his checkbook. He would show my professor his checkbook of all the things that he had been, this is back when we used checkbooks, of all the things that he had uh, spent money on. And he would say, how much, how much you make this year? And then he would, of course, gloat and tell how much he, probably a hundredfold, whatever. And so he, my professor said he became over time, and he said this with grief, he became over time papery and thin, tinny, insubstantial, very much like Psalm 1, like the wicked in Psalm 1. We become like what we gaze at, not rooted, not fruitful, not thick and heavy and real, but insubstantial, ready to be blown away by the judgment of God. Michael Reeves, again, he says that our fears are like EKG readings. They tell us the contour and the condition of our heart. Here's a diagnostic question. What if taken away would crush you? Not hurt, but crush you. It would make you feel like you couldn't go on living. That's the thing that you fear. That's the thing that you love. That's the thing that you built your life around. It's what you're looking to sustain you and give you a sense of purpose. But Keller says, the trouble is that um, trouble can take anything away from you except God. So everything else is a trapdoor. So finally, in closing, in light of God's truth then, how should we live? How do we apply this as we walk out from here as a people, right? How do we apply this? In a sense, how do we gaze on Christ? So let me just offer a few things. Again, don't look in or look out most. We have to look out. We're not gonna bury our heads in the sand. We have to be aware of what's going on and not, and not just ignore the world. In fact, quite the contrary. We are salt and light to disperse into the world, to know what's happening. But that's not what we need to be feeding on. Nor do we need to be navel-gazing. We need to be feeding on and gazing on the living God and the person of Jesus Christ, right? He died for us. He rose for us. He's alive for us. He's reigning for us, and he will return soon for us. So how do we, how do we gaze on him? I'm going to say this till I die, hopefully, but we spend daily time with him. 
Um, some, some people think that they're going to automatically be, become more and more like Jesus just because they're saved and they believed on him. That's not necessarily true. We have to gaze. And yet, this isn't a work of ours, but it does take effort. It's, it's a work of his, and it's gazing on him. But it takes that time daily, throughout the day, constantly to remind ourselves to sort of, you know, uh, I wander. Help me, Lord, for I'm constantly wandering. Pull me back to you. How do we do that? We do that in community, reminding one another to gaze on Jesus. We gaze on the Lord daily and throughout the day. Um, we spend that time in his word and in prayer. And we're going to help you do that. Within the next two weeks, we're going to get, God willing, but we're going to get, um, we're going to work on getting you all into D groups, but we're also going to get something in your hands that will be a tool to help you spend time in his word daily. Um, spend time in prayer. It'll give you tools to be able to do that better, hopefully, and then to draw others into that and then to begin better. You're already doing it to reach out to the lost with the hope of Christ Jesus and to begin to make disciples. Um, I, I want to say that I think a great illustration that I learned about this week from, from Corey, uh, she, she has a horse, their family has a horse, and she's been training the horse, and she said, the horse is, it's not trained yet. She's in the middle of training it, and it's nervous, it's anxious, and it moves its feet all around and gets jittery, kind of like you might have felt like that the past 18 months. I feel like that every day. And she says, it's interesting because the only thing that calms him down, how you know you have him, is when he locks on you. When he fixes his eyes on you, his feet stop moving. Isn't that good? I think God gave that to me just for, just for y'all. And that is really to see God Almighty, the, whole, the thrice holy one, high and lifted up on the cross for us, to gaze on his beauty, to preach the gospel to ourselves again every day. I go through, I try to go through five psalms a day. About every two or three hours, I'll read another psalm. It takes five minutes at a time. Just because of that reason, I need to be brought back every few hours because I forget and I forget again and I forget again. And we want to help you find that rhythm. It's so important. You can't grow without it. Um, gaze on him. Regular worship of him with his body in house church here corporately once a month. Um, walking together getting together in smaller groups of two to five. We're gonna call those D groups. We're gonna help you with that. We really want to get each, each single person that I'm laying eyes on, um, maybe including my own kids, I'm laying eyes on them into D groups. Kids D groups, why not? We wanna get you into those. And I wanna say just a few more things and then I'll pray and close this. Um, and and I'm, not saying, I'm not saying any of these just because I think they sound nice. I'm saying them as your pastor and I only have a limited amount of time and it's up. So I'm saying them, I'm trying to say them with as much authority as I can, like, please do these things. Turn off your screens. Am I saying don't look at screens? I'm not saying, I'm using hyperbole. Jesus used it so I can use it, right? Get outside. Say no to screens and yes to faces, real people and creation. Minimize screen time. We all have to be on screens, that's fine, but be thoughtful about them. When you come in with your family, men in the evening or women, put your phone in a box or put it in the front and don't look at it again until the kids are in bed, if you can. Sometimes you can't do that, but we really need to be careful. Um, turn off the news. Read your news. Read long, thoughtful, investigative articles, okay? Uh, read little things that don't go beep, beep, beep and talk back to you. Read. Um, and even limit that. Are you spending more time imbibing news about the world outside than you are in God's word. That's a problem. I'm not here to shame you. I'm just saying, let's work on our habits. They matter. 
Our gaze matters. What are we feeding on? You are what you eat. You are what you eat. If you're full of fears, there's a reason for that, okay? Gazing on Christ is, is the antidote. Seeing him in his power and his beauty. Um, the World and Everything in It is a great way to get daily news. It's a 30-minute podcast. I highly recommend it. The World and Everything in It. Um, stop diving down the wormholes. Um, YouTube wormholes and other things. Everybody's an expert out there. Everybody's got an opinion. I'm not saying don't get on YouTube. I'm not saying don't get on screens. Don't get on the internet. Don't watch TV. Don't watch it. I'm saying minimize it. Minimize it. Be aware, but feed on the living God through his word, in prayer, with others. Get outside. Um, fixate on Jesus. Remind yourself of the gospel. Let's be hope mongers, not fear mongers. Our reality is that we're headed somewhere good if we're in Christ. And if we're not in Christ, I plead with you. I enjoin you. Come to Christ. He's the only non-trap door. He's the only solid foundation. He, he beat death through death. Okay? Through him and in him by faith, we can truly pass through death into life that will never end. And we will indeed be resurrected as he has been with new bodies. Let's be hope mongers. I'm thinking about teaching through Esther, Daniel, and Revelation next year. And of course, by I'm thinking about teaching in our structure, I mean I'm thinking about teaching and having your house ch uh, church leaders walk you through and teach you through these books, partly because these people in these contexts, in Esther, in Daniel, and in Revelation, so in the Persian context, in the uh, Babylonian context, and then the Roman context, had way more things to fear than even we do, way more. And yet they fixed their eyes on the living God, who has actually, in Christ, given us so much more of the vision of all the promises that we've seen. They are coming to pass. His kingdom is indeed spreading throughout the world. He is reigning, and he will return soon. Let's be hope mongers. He's not wringing his hands. He has a king that he set on his throne, and he's making of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Don't look out. Look in. Don't look in. Look up at the one who was lifted up for us in death, who beat death, who is alive, who is reigning, and who is soon to return. Fear him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the fact that you are the word who became flesh, who came to rescue us. I, I thank you that you made us to fear you, and to fear you is to love you, because you are a God of love who is lovely. And I thank you that you show us all of that in the person of Jesus Christ, your son. When we see Jesus on the cross, we see you as you truly are. I thank you that we get to experience that now in the wine and the bread. And Lord, I pray that you would make us a truly fear-filled people that would really just be an awe-soaked love of you because of who you are and what you've done in Christ. Send us out from here, Lord, to preach that good news to a world that is just racked with fear. Help us to present Christ in all we do and say. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.